Good morning. I'm so grateful that Brian left us with that thought. What if your what if these trials and tears are your mercies in disguise? That's so appropriate to the message in Acts chapter 16 this morning as we continue our series out of Acts, uh, Becoming the Church, the Stories of the First Jesus People. When I open Acts, in some way, I'm always kind of walking, whether it's Peter or Paul, I'm walking with them. And as you walk through the events and experiences, I know for myself, I'm, I'm thinking, how would I assess this? How would I evaluate this? I'm, I'm trying to understand my own Christian walk in the light of what they went through. When I got to chapter 16, it just seemed like it was one hardship after another. Difficulty on difficulty, opposition after opposition, hardship on hardship on hardship. And I, you know, I mentioned that because I think, wow, this is not for us the pattern of what we imagine is the successful Christian life. I, I just, I, I wondered as I was reading and pondering this, how far would I have gone? before I thought, I took a wrong turn somewhere. Somewhere I left God's will behind. Or I turned away from him instead of toward him because you know, the things that are going on here are perplexing. At least as I imagined what it would be like for me. And I realize I'm not Paul. Please, you don't have to remind me. You're not Paul. And yet we're looking for connections between our experience. And I think there's some things that are very noteworthy here that we have to include in our worldview, our view of what it means to walk with the Lord. We need to incorporate some of the things that came as Paul and with him Silas and then Timothy and even Luke uh, made their way through the events of Acts chapter 16. And with this idea of uh, incorporating this, it, it caused me to think this week about success and our contemporary notions of success. I googled a question. Uh, Google's the most powerful search engine, I'm told. It sure works for me. And uh, so I googled a question and I used you know, a contemporary notion of business is maybe a template for, you know, what is success? How do you, how do you know whether you're successful? And uh, here was my question, how does a business measure success? And I know we have business people here. My wife is an independent business woman. How do you measure success? And of course, immediately you get a list of, and you, the top link is presumably the the best link, so I clicked on that, 
And uh, here was a yardstick for measuring success, a list of five elements or first things of success. Number one, profit. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, if I'm in business and I'm not making a profit, then I should probably get out, right? Profit. And then growing customer base and customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, owner satisfaction. These are reasonable things. But first things, just for example, if you take this notion of profit, I mean, and I know we can get muddled in defining, well, what is profit? But let's just take it at face value. You know, you're making more money than you're losing. And, and so the notion of profit as a first thing, as a, as a target, as a goal, as a measuring stick of whether you're succeeding, it becomes also instrumental in decision making, choices, how you steer this business ship that you're at the helm of. And that becomes significant because a first thing then weights it in terms of all the decisions that you make. Does the importance of profit justify fudging on the rules a little? I mean, when you think maybe your survival is at stake. Or maybe your competitors are not playing by the same rules. I know a man in our church that was an independent business owner some years back. He was driven out of business because he could not compete on the terms of competition, of being able to keep his prices low because for him it meant being dishonest, doing some things under the table, things that were pretty common in that particular field. There were ways that were fairly commonplace and he had to make a tough decision. And all of a sudden then profit takes on a different quality and importance. He lost his business. And then, of course, with losing his business, he lost his home. And it brings to mind the question, you know, what is my purpose? What is a first thing for me? It's interesting to me, I, I, on this same page, I ran across a wikianswers.com link and the question that it was answering was should business and ethics go together and the answer and I don't know where these answers coming from I mean a, a clue is wiki that wiki wiki I mean <laughs> could be anybody but it is the answer it was the answer and I think it's telling in and of itself that this was the answer to the question should business and ethics go together and the answer is in a utopian society yes you know, utopian, imperfect, in Eden. Yes. But we don't live in a utopian society, do we? So no, business and ethics should not go together. Otherwise, no success would be seen. 
Now, I know there are ethical business owners, and there are people who make it. But I just wanted to raise the question, what is success, and to what end? I googled the same question, and only instead of business, I used the word church. So how does a church measure success? And again, the first link, this is what I read right at the top after clicking on that link. Success for a church should look very different than from modern business. You'd think I was making this up, it's just so suitable. But I'm not. Measuring the number of people that come to a Sunday event or how much money was given does not tell if a church is truly succeeding. The measurement has to come from factors such as spiritual growth and development, how members are doing on Monday, not just how they act on Sunday. The following seven traits, we'll see it's a church, so not just five, we've got seven. The, if you know anything about numbers from the Bible, seven is considered a, a divine number. So they have seven traits, measurements, to look at uh, success. One, reliance on God's word. Two, anticipation of God's empowering presence. Three, intentionally missional. Uh, four, strong leadership development. Expanding, number five, network of small groups. Uh, six, intentional disciple-making, and seven, sacrificial giving. Now, um, these two examples serve as models that help us focus. I don't want to debate the details of the two models, but I do want to get at this issue of success, and it illustrates that there can be a great difference between, say, a business and a church. But if we lay our question, and the question is, how do I, how do you view success? And if we lay that question, your question and my question, over Acts 16, we may take the question a step further. How would I gauge success if I were traveling with the Apostle Paul? And I want to walk us very quickly uh, through some of Acts 16. Uh, so we're going to look just for a moment at where Paul traveled. Now you recall he and Barnabas went in separate directions. Barnabas, along with Mark, went to Cyprus. Paul, with uh, Silas, when he got to Lycia and Lystra, he got Timothy. Timothy joined them on this trip. And boy, if you remember their first visit to Lystra, it was not what you would call a rousing success. But obviously, even though he couldn't have reported to his shareholders, any profit or advantage, at least in terms of a tif Timothy, when he got back, God was already at work. God was already growing something that he couldn't have reported at the time. And then from there, they planned to go into Asia. This is Asia. And you'll notice here's Ephesus right here, Colossae, Laodicea. These are well-known cities, but at this time, we're told in verses 6 and 7 and 8 that uh, somehow, some way, it's not fully 
revealed to us that God prevented them. And so, instead of going where we may presume he wanted to go, he went to Troas. He moved west. And as he went toward Troas, they wanted to go, as they passed through Mycenae, into Bithynia. But they were prevented. So they go to Troas, and, and it's in Troas that evidently Luke joins them, because that's the first we reference in Acts. Verse uh, 10, and there Paul has a vision. And it's in this vision, now just let me back up for a second. I mean, weeks have passed. These are over 200 miles of travel. This is arduous work. And he's, when he's prevented, this is not, you know, a quick decision. This is like, wow, we've come this way. Now we've got to make our way in a different direction. And so when the vision comes and the Macedonian figure of the vision, this is Macedonia here, says, come over and help us. I'm sure, I mean, I put myself in Paul's place. I would think, now we know where to go. Now God's made our direction clear. Now we're on our way. And if you want to put it in contemporary terms, now success. And so they book passage, and they go from Troas to Samothrace. They come to Neapolis and make their way immediately to Philippi. And there, just as is Paul's custom, they seek out other Jews, the synagogue, to the Jews first, then the Gentiles, and they make their way, but there is no synagogue per se. By the way, Philippi, it was uh, just outside of Philippi back in 42 BC that the murderers of Julius Caesar were tracked down by Antony and Octavian, and they had a big battle, and those two were put to death. And when they dismissed many of their soldiers, their soldiers occupied Philippi. And again, that same Octavian became Augustus, ruler of the Roman Empire, and made Philippi a colony. And there were many soldiers represented there. A colony meant that everything that goes on in Philippi is just as it goes on in Italy, on home soil. It, they're self-governed by Roman law. The soldier, I mean, this is a Roman city. And so the Jews, there aren't many. In fact, Paul asks around, where are they? He finds that they're holding prayer and worship out by the river. This is probably a Sabbath, as was Paul's practice, and so it's a Sabbath day's journey. Uh, not too far to there, which would be a violation of the law, and there's water so that they can perform ritual purity and so forth. He finds Lydia, tells, her, tells them, uses the opportunity to tell these seekers of God, these proselyte Jews, some of them, like Lydia, about Jesus Christ. They respond, they're baptized. This is very positive. It's a start. Lydia says, look, obviously Paul wasn't staying in any Jewish home. She says, stay in our home. Make this your base of operation. Um, on another Sabbath, they're making their way out there. And this time, along the way, 
a, long, a young slave girl who's possessed with a spirit who allows her to reveal things that haven't happened yet, things that people don't know. She's tracing after Paul and saying, you know, these men represent the Most High God, and they're telling you the way of salvation. And she follows after Paul, and we'll go into this in, in a future Sunday, but Paul sees this opposition and he exercises her after many days and she has some handlers who are making profit off of her and as a result this deprives them of their profit she's a slave girl that they're capitalizing upon and now they can't make money and so they are infuriated they seize Paul and Silas they drag them into the marketplace bring them the magistrates those who run there too run the, the city they're drop pulled in they make charges against them not that they've deprived them of their profit but that they're trying to overthrow Roman custom they're Jews which shows there's anti-semitism already that's probably why they worship outside the city to begin with they're stripped they're beaten with canes I don't know if you've been caned lately but we don't even allow I mean I had a fifth grade teacher that hit me with a 12 inch ruler and that was enough and that's not even legal anymore they were caned and thrown in prison considered dangerous what I'm trying to give you a picture of is okay the vision says, go this way, and all they run into is more opposition, obstacles, suffering, pain, and difficulty. And I'm thinking, wow, this is success? Come to Jesus. Now, this is a very sobering issue, I think, for you and me. Because when I look at what we do, or let me, I'll just personalize this. I'll say what happens to me. If I get a flat tire on the way to an appointment and I'm running a little late, what happens? Dag nabbit. run into difficulties, run into hardships, run into obstacles, not even mentioning suffering. And these are forces. I mean, I can identify some forces here. Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, the sixth chapter, starting at verse 10, it runs all the way to verse 20. But in verse 12, he tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And he goes on to talk about spiritual forces. And I can see some forces right here. Not only are we cued to the fact that there is spiritual opposition involved, but then it, as a part of that comes in the love of money. And don't think spiritual forces are not beyond or that somehow they're above using these kinds of influential cravings of human nature. And then political prejudice. And even the kind of prejudice against peoples. You can understand how these Romans probably felt. It's going on all over the world. 
Social and political change causes people to move. We have people coming to the United States and it unsettles us because we feel comfortable with our tradition, our culture, our ways. And this throng of people, maybe of a different color, a different style, a different culture, we feel it threatening. And we see it happening right here. Paul and Silas represent a threat. And here's a prejudice, both political and human, that is an obstacle to the gospel. And then they're punished and they're thrown in prison. They're seen as such a threat that the jailer himself, who probably is a part of the brutality, he represents the system and superiority of Rome and Caesar. Don't ever think Romans were not above rubbing your nose in their superiority. They proved it on every level. And now Paul, beaten and bleeding, is in prison, and he and Silas are praising God. Now, if you have trouble getting your head around that, then we're of the same mind. Because when I get honest with myself, sometimes I think, Lord, is that the way I manage the difficulties, challenges, and hardships of my life? Do I think when hardships, opposition, and suffering come, somewhere along the line, I lost sight of you. I turned away from you. I've moved out of your will. Somehow this is punishment, you know. This is somehow God's instrument of trying to get me back on track, not a part of being on track. Because sometimes we get this assumption that success in Jesus Christ means no problems, no difficulties, a wide highway. But this one's absolutely upside down and contrary to what Scripture tells us again and again. This is a real gut check here. And here's the thing that I find most moving to me. They're singing at midnight. Oh, this is where I read the scripture. Let's turn. This is 16:25, about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Silas didn't say to Paul or Paul to Silas, shh, keep your voice down. We don't want to disturb anybody. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. God showed up. He's going to get us out of here. That's the way I immediately would think of that. Thank you, Lord. Let's, let's get out of here. Let's go. This is God's opportunity to turn things around. And the jailer, because under Roman law, anything that happened to your prisoner would then 
become the measure of your own judgment. So if the prisoner escaped and the penalty for escape is death to the prisoner, then if the prisoner escapes and is not caught and the penalty issued, it goes to the jailer. And Paul sees the jailer. He wakes up, he sees what's happened, and when he saw the prison doors open, verse 27, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And at that moment, I'm thinking, what's Paul's definition of success? If it's to get out of here, if it's to escape, if it's to move on to the things that he's sure God wants him to do, and he looks completely past the man who has brutalized him in the name of Rome, who symbolizes and represents and stands for his enemy, his opponent, if he looks beyond him to what he thinks God wants him to do, then he lets him take his life because that only ensures his escape. And Paul, to my amazement, says, hold your hand. We're all here. And this man is so moved by that. He asks for light to be brought. He enters into their cell and trembling, which shows you the emotion of what Paul has done for him. Because there's a connection between Paul saying, stay your hand, we're all here, we're all safe. And his next reaction, and he comes before Paul and he says, what do I do to be saved? Now we'll take that up in the future. We'll come back to Acts 16 because there's a lot here. But what I wanted us to see was this, this thing where Paul has a notion of success in his heart that he doesn't capitalize on the immolation and harm that the jailer who was his enemy and the man who brutalized him, he doesn't capitalize on that. He sees it as opportunity. He sees difficulties, opposition as opportunity. And I, I just thought this morning, that's what we need to think about. Are we looking beyond God's power to gratify ourselves, to seek our own success? Or are we seeing as that very opportunity something that causes us to look beyond ourselves to others? And we know what this is because we are all recipients of it. If this morning you know Jesus Christ, then you know what I'm talking about. And it, it brings with within you an understanding that you want other people to know Jesus as you know him. We have a peace and a love and a joy that's, that's so foundational that sometimes we forget that the world doesn't have that, that it doesn't know that. We, if you're like me, you kind of see people as you see yourself. So you think other people are as content. There's a level of contentment and joy and peace and certainty and hope and assurance that even on our worst day, 
We're not seeing it as the rest of the world would see a like situation because of Jesus in our lives. Sometimes I think we look beyond that, looking for more. We live in a society, by the way, that just, I mean, it breeds it. There's a sense of, I'm entitled. There's a sense in which, if anything goes wrong, somebody's to blame because in my world that shouldn't happen. Even if it should be the sky falling. Somebody's accountable. Somebody could have prevented that. Sometimes, you know, we want such control over things that that we've ruled out the possibility that God is going to use the challenges and difficulties in our life to bring about His will for others and accomplish things that are our heritage because we're here this morning because of chapter 16, because of the suffering of Paul. And I just wanted to sow this thought that Jesus people define success as the relentless pursuit of an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with others. Do I fall short of that on any given day? You betcha. But I thought, you know, if we were to ponder that or to let that light come into our hearts, realize it, then maybe in our own little chapter 16, the chapter 16 when we're at work or at school, or the chapter 16 when things are not great at home, or the chapter 16 when we're in some other endeavor, or when as a business person we're making decisions for our future and the future of our employees, and we're tempted at that point to make success as profit, the chief and first end of what we do. And maybe into those kinds of situations we might say, wait a second, maybe there's something more profound. Maybe there's something about living a Christ-like life and showing others Jesus Christ that wherever I am, under whatever conditions, whatever circumstances, wave after wave of difficulty, I'm still successful because I put Jesus first. And so they stop at nothing, even opposition, even suffering, and as we saw most pointedly, even opportunity. 